what we've been teaching, um, and we've doing, been doing a little bit of, um, sorry, I didn't quite, I didn't, sometimes when I do the quick change thing, it, I'd get a little disheveled here. So let me make sure this, this microphone is on correctly before we, because, or else it's going to bother me the whole time. Um, we've been actually in a sermon series because our church is at a crossroads. We are talking about leadership and leadership roles and what does it mean to be a, a, a Christian leader and using your spiritual gifts. That, that's been where we're going. And we're looking at a particular book. It's the book of 1 Timothy, where T Paul is giving Timothy's instructions about how the church is supposed to be. Now, we don't have time to go back over what we've been looking at, but they were correcting some problems that were happening in the Ephesian church. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God, in his wisdom, included in his word instructions about how we are supposed to be and interact as a church. I'm thankful for my mom, but I'm also thankful for God's word, because although my mom has taught me many things, I'll tell you, God's word has also taught me so many things along the way. And don't you love studying the Bible? In fact, it says about the Bible, saying about itself, in 1 Timothy, another, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, another letter that Paul writes to this young man, it says all scripture, and we talked about last week that all means all, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's the all again, right? It's the all. This is for all of us, all of the time, God has given all of his word to teach us. And it keeps teaching us things. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living or alive. It's active. That means it's doing stuff right now. Paul says it's sharper, or the writer of Hebrews says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word is the one thing that God continues to use in my life to teach me, to correct me, to train me. It's alive. It points out my, 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 my wrong thinking, but also my right thinking. God uses his word in my life consistently. I'm so thankful for God's word. Okay, stop, pause. But sometimes it's tricky. There are some passages in the Bible that I look at and I go, geez, I don't know what that means exactly. Okay, okay, or, okay, there's even some that make me a little bit uncomfortable. I've been telling you we're going through 1 Timothy, and we come today to a passage that um, <clears throat> makes me a little bit... Um, squeamish, causes me to be a little bit uneasy, has caused me to study harder than I have in a long, long time, and digging through a lot more stuff of material than I usually have to do, and because it doesn't seem to be apparent, and it goes against what I think is often what my sensibilities and even the wisdom God has given me in my heart. Okay, let's just jump to the passage, okay? Let's just see what it is. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 uh, through 15. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now we know Adam became a sinner too, but okay. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. So happy Mother's Day. Um, 
and probably what will probably be up on some website somewhere as the greatest blooper that any pastor could ever make in his sermon preparation or planning, me not remembering Mother's Day, has somehow lined out 1 Timothy and all the passages we were going to teach on, and it just so happens that this one falls on <clears throat> Mother's Day. I was so glad that Pastor Lee reminded me that it was Mother's Day today, and I'm like, oh no, oh no. Well, here we are. This is the passage. Let's jump in. Let's dig deep. I think it actually has something to say not only to our mothers, but to the women without, that are not mothers, and to the men and all of us in the church together. Let's dig deep. You see what I'm worried about. You see the obvious problems. What does it say in verse 11? A woman should learn in quietness, full submission, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority and authority over a man. She must be quiet. You see why this is a problem, right? I mean, all of a sudden, what? Does that mean in the home? Does that mean in the workplace? Does that mean at school? Okay, in my classes, am I supposed to ask a question? Of, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you're female. You're not allowed to speak. Only the men can answer the question. Is that how this is supposed to go? That doesn't seem to be what I think of when I think of how Christ has called us into one body and one people. It seems to go against everything I think. Is this about the home, the workplace? Is this only about the church? But even then, in church, does that mean women shouldn't speak at church at all? Like when, from the moment you get out of your car to the minute you leave. Is that what this is saying? Okay, do you even see the bigger problem? Look in the next verse. In verse 15, it says, women will be saved through childbearing. Wait, 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 wait. We just celebrated baptism. We know that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. That he substituted himself for us by his death on the cross. That he died for our sins and rose again. And that, I'm going to take this off because this is really, this is not working. That he died, that he rose again. That he and he alone is the one who provides salvation for us. We know that it is in Christ and Christ alone that salvation comes. It is not through childbearing. Then what would women who don't ever, they never married or never had children, are, are they impossible to go to heaven or be saved? That can't be what Paul means. I don't understand this passage. I don't understand this text. But I believe all scripture is God-breathed. I believe that God has every word in here for our, for our instruction. So what do I do? Brothers and sisters, we are called to the sometimes difficult task of interpretation, of trying to get exactly what the scripture means. And when we interpret scripture, we begin with saying, what was the original meaning that God intended for the original recipients, those who initially received that letter? And then we draw out of that principles that lead us in today's world, principles that direct and directives for us as God's people today. So how do we do this? How do we do this interpretation? Well, first, we have to um, determine the meaning of the original words and phrases in the original language. We, we, we've got to look and say, make sure it wasn't written in English, by the way. It was written in Greek and the Old Testament and Hebrew. And we need to understand the, the syntax, the grammar, the, the, the semantic range of the different words involved. And we need to compare those words and phrases for how they're used elsewhere throughout the scriptures. We compare what Paul says here with what Paul says elsewhere, with what Peter says, with what Jesus says, and what's said throughout the scriptures. And finally, we don't want to skip this. We have to look at the societal context. What was going on in that situation, both in the Greco-Roman world in which the New Testament was produced, in the Judea, Judea, 
uh, in the Jewish tradition uh, where Jesus and, and the apostles were coming from, and even in the particulars of the church at Ephesus where Timothy was leading and where he was serving as pastors. Okay, if this was my class, this would be the moment that everybody would go like, okay, they're already on their phones looking for what class can I transfer into. That sounds a lot. That's way too difficult. How can I really interpret the Bible that way? Do I have to read every verse of Scripture and do all of this work? That's, I, I've not been to seminary. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I, I think I need to find an easier class. So there's got to be a, somewhere I can transfer to. Here's some good news, friendless. Brothers, sisters, look at this. If you have a good translation of the Bible, a good translation, or even multiple translations. That can help us get to those original meanings of the words. And a good study Bible or Bible commentary, that can help resolve a lot of issues. In fact, that will help you resolve most issues and help you understand what's going on. So it's not actually too far away. It's not actually something that's very difficult, okay? Except in passages like this. <laughs> Where Bible scholars disagree. And I'm not, for those of you that know the context, I'm not just talking about the Bible scholars who, well, there's those that don't really believe the Bible's true, and then the ones that really do believe the Bible's true. I'm talking about the ones who all believe the Bible is true and, and really disagree with each other about what this text is particularly talking about. So hang on. We're about to dig deep. Hang on. If you're taking notes, hang on. We're going to go, because there is great disagreement about this passage, and I'm going to give you a warning right now. You might disagree with where I've landed on this. And if so, we can keep talking about it. You might change my mind. I might change yours. Because this one is confusing. And we have instructions in Romans 14 about how we deal with disputable matters. How we kind of keep it to ourselves for the most part. We never do something that's going to cause someone else to stumble. But we're always working together to try to like understand the text. Okay, so let's go. I'm convinced. I'm just going to lay it out here. Here's my thesis. I'm convinced that this text does not mean that a woman is supposed to be subordinate and submissive to all men in every context. I don't know very many people who think that is true, but there are a few. But that is not what Paul is arguing for. I don't even think that it means that women are supposed to be submissive and subordinate in the church context where they don't have a voice or a role or places to teach and make God's word and make him known. I am so thankful for the women who have taught me so many important truths in my life. I don't think that's what this means. But what I do think is this, this passage that says a woman should learn in some quietness and full submission that she's not supposed to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I believe we need to look at some other passages that actually affirm that women had very specific roles in the church. 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those. It's a passage about worship. It's about what the church did when they came together. And the Apostle Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's just the same as her head being shaved. Okay, that passage has its own problems. But this is clear. And everyone agrees that this is clear. That in the early church, in the church at Corinth, that women prayed in public as part of the worship. That women prophesied. What is prophecy? They were giving directives from God to God's people about what God was calling them to do. They had a critical, important role in the communal life of the church together. That is not even disputed. We all see this. Well, he goes on. Other passages, like, first, like Romans chapter 16, is so important because Paul is just giving, hey, greet this person and greet this person. Let me tell you about this person and hey, this person. 
All the way through Romans 16, the women have a predominant role. Look what he says in the very first verse. I commend to you our sister. I mean, it's not a guy. It's his sister. Our sister, Phoebe. She's a deacon. What, a deacon? In the church. That's right. She's a deacon in the church. In other words, she had an office. She had a role, a role of ministry or service in the church. He also mentions a woman named Junia, who was his fellow Jewish worker and leader, who she said was outstanding among the apostles. A few weeks ago, we talked about not big A apostle, but little A apostle. People who made God's word known, the truth about Jesus known. These were women that Paul wanted to say, I want you to recognize and elevate these ladies. He goes on. We don't have time to go through them all. But there was Mary, who was a hard worker, or Trophima and Trophosa. He says these women who worked hard in the Lord. There was Persis, another woman, he says, who was a servant of God and worked hard for the Lord. He mentions Julio and Olympus, all in one chapter, right alongside the men who were leaders in that congregation. The women were using their gifts and leading out in that congregation as well. Well, I'm convinced that this passage is not about the subjugation of women I'm, and, and, and complete limit and limitation of women. Also because of the actual grammar that is in the text itself. The language that is used. Look what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, a woman should remain silent or is it a wife should remain in quietness? Now, what, what, what do we mean here? Well... Uh, the, the root word there um, can often be used, and it's usually used sometimes for women and sometimes for wife. In fact, in, in the very next chapter, it, it seems to be used that way. If Peter uses it, we're going to see the same word. The same word, sometimes used just to mean woman, but also often used to mean wife. A lot of biblical scholars and interpreters say, no, this is about a wife. And that would change the meaning a lot. If he said, instead of a woman is supposed to learn in quietness, a wife should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a wife to teach or assume authority over a man or over a husband. She must be quiet. This seems to correspond exactly with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. Right? Remember, we're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. We're using other passages where he says wives should remain silent in the churches. Oh, there's that quietness piece again. They are not allowed to speak but must remain in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands. It seems more about wives at home than about and, and the wife-husband relationship in the church than it does about the woman's relationship in the church. He says, for a wife, for it's disgraceful for a wife to speak in church. Now, here's what's going on. I think we can even see this a little bit. Have you ever been uncomfortable when you've seen a wife and a husband disagree like in public? Like one saying one thing about the child and the other one saying the other thing about the child. Or you see a wife that not just disagreeing about where to go to eat, but disagreeing about something. Like, well, I think we ought to do our money this way. And just in public. And it's fine that we all disagree. I'm just going to go ahead. Those of you that are married, those of you who think about marriage, there's marriage discussions. We all have disagreements and discussions. But when it's in public, sometimes that's just a little bit on the awkward side, right? Here in a Greco-Roman world, where there was very definite patriarchy, where the husbands ruled the households and the women did not have as much of a place. Now, there was some progression in this even during this time period, but for the most part, the women very much did not have a place in their household. They did not speak in public, and they certainly did not contradict their husbands in public. Could you imagine a situation in the church if, the, if the, a pastor or a male leader was teaching some scripture and all of a sudden his wife was like, I don't know about that. I can just imagine, uh, I'm not going to use me, Pastor Barry up here for a 
I can imagine Pastor Barry giving some very profound, very insightful understanding of God's Word and how to apply that. And then Sabrina stands up and goes, yeah, but at home, let me tell you what he really does. All right. Hey, well, let me contradict that. Well, you know, I don't think that's... That was a, I mean, that would make all of us go a little bit like, oh, well, what's going on there, right? Imagine if we were in this regular Roman culture where women weren't supposed to speak, where women didn't have that role at all in society. Imagine if that were to occur. Oh, my goodness. The non-Christians who were visiting, those who were outsiders who were looking at what was going on would say... This is just chaos. This is just disorder. They're, they're, they're throwing out the whole social norms. And we need to realize that concern for the social order was central for the Apostle Paul. He, now, he pushed against it at times, but he was concerned that they, everything in worship be done in a proper and fitting way. His goal was a good representation of Jesus Christ. A good representation of Jesus Christ. You're still hearing me now, right? A good representation of Jesus Christ through a good order that was done in corporate Christian behavior. How do I know this? Back up one verse. Back up one verse to 1 Corinthians 14, 13. What does it say? For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace, as in all of the congregations of the Lord's people. God's God of order. He also says this when he finishes this passage in verse 40. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. The Apostle Paul was saying that wives need to act in that role in public because that was what the culture expected them to do. And so they need to talk to their husbands at home if they've got something that they want to ask a question about or if they want to disagree. We see this sort of evangelistic nature in the connection of husbands and wives in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 1. We're again, using that same word, by the way. It's the same word that's translated women and men. It's the same word. Here, it's obviously wives. Wives, in the same way, submit to your, yourselves to your husbands. So that if uh, any of them do not believe, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. There was fitting in with the culture a bit to be a good ambassador of how Jesus does change us. He calls us into a new life. He's called us into a kingdom where men and women are absolutely not only of equal worth, but of equal status. In heaven, none of us will be teachers. In heaven, all of us will have one king. But even right now, we still have to fit in that social order to some degree. Now, this creates a tension. And if there's one thing you learn in this message today, remind you that the scripture reflects this tension that I'm going to share. As ambassadors of Jesus, at times, we are called to confront culture. This is wrong. This is not true. This is not just. This is not fair. This, this, this violates equity and equality. This is not God's design. We are going to face down this issue. And at times, we have to accommodate where the overall culture sees And sometimes we're confronting. We love that. Okay, we're standing up for justice. But sometimes, in the scripture, they accommodated culture. It, it, it seems that both were held in an attention. That's why there's certain passages that make us very, very uncomfortable. Here's another one. It's not just the women and men one. It's the slaves and master one. I don't even want to talk about that. Slavery in the Bible? Oh, I don't like that. I don't like it at all. This is what it says in Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. What? 
Slavery is a great evil. It is awful all the time. It is never good. It is never just. It is never right. It is never fair. And it is never acceptable for the believers to say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, slavery, you know, I'm sure it's fine. It was good for them back then. No, slavery is always wrong. Anybody got an amen that one? Amen. It's not okay. And yet, in that Roman, Greco-Roman world, it was 30 to 50% of all people were in some form of slavery. Captured, forced into slavery, or selling themselves into a form of indentured servitude. They, 30 to 50% of people were slaves. This was just social reality. And though Paul was calling for change, though Paul pointed out that all people had equal work, and in fact, in the next per- verse, he does so. It says, Masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both, oh, guess what? Your master and theirs is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. There's no favoritism. He doesn't think you're better than they are. No, all people are people, and you have one master, and we all stand before one king. That, that all humanity are equal in God's sight. And so as people, you better treat that person. You found yourself as the master or you found yourself as the slave in that society. You need to show reverence for Christ. You need to be a witness by fitting in and accommodating that social norm while it was the dominant view of culture, while it was the reality. And all the while, he says, we work to gain our freedom. We work to, 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 to treat others. And in fact, Paul tells Philemon to release Onesimus, to do what he ought to do for that fellow brother in Christ. Guys, these are examples of places where the culture isn't what God ultimately intends. And at times, we are pushing against that culture. And Paul certainly was. I think he was pushing for women to have a place in the church and a place to use their spiritual gifts so that in corporate worship, women had that role. And at the time, he was also accommodating the order that they believed was, was, man, that was just the way it was. The universe has ordained it that the women didn't speak in public. They didn't have roles of teaching in public in that way. But this is real for us. Anybody like our capitalism system? I like it. I think it's mm, probably better than communism. I don't know. Communism might be more of the New Testament. I don't know. You know what? I know that there's going to be a day when money isn't going to matter. The streets are going to be gold, so it doesn't really matter. There's going to be a day when, when money isn't going to be a thing. I'm not going to be saying, well, is my 401k No. No, heaven will be. Heaven will be my, my inheritance. Heaven will be there. There's going to be a day when we're not going to have democracy. It's going to be a theocracy. It's going to be a monarchy. There's going to be Christ will be the head. And these fighting intentions in democracy, that's going to go away. The systems we have that might be the best we can have as humans are not God's ultimate intention for us. Sometimes we challenge, sometimes we confront, sometimes we object to, sometimes we, and sometimes we have to accommodate those cultures. Now when we do that thing is extremely important. Paul says in Colossians, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. I want to also say not only be wise in the way we're acting towards outside culture, but we've also got to be faithful to those who are inside culture. And they're inside this Christian community. We've got to be faithful interpreters of God's word. Because I've got to be honest, we've got to get this one right. We struggle, and I'm going to, I get it. Christians disagree about this issue, but we've got to get it right. In my class, I give an assignment. I've been doing it for several years on identity. 
on identity. And having students say, what do they believe is their very identity? You remember that Owen, Owen did this assignment. And did this idea, this, okay. Um, and they're going to tell what makes them, whether culture or perspectives or, you know, uh, occupation. There's a bunch of things that people think up make up their identity. I, I got a written assignment one time that bothered me to my core. It's a young lady. She wrote how she grew up in a very conservative Christian environment. She went to a Christian school. Uh, her parents attended this Christian church. But this particular church interpreted this passage very differently than I did. This particular church it seemed to interpret it where women needed to be silent at all points and not ask any questions and not even sort of have any sort of direction even of themselves and that they just need to submit and listen to men all the time. She wrote this. My intellect was called into question by my pastors who were also my teachers. Men who weren't fond of young girls having opinions on the scripture. Instead of being encouraged to learn, to know God, she was dismissed. And she's been, quite frankly, feels like Christianity is something she just wants to dismiss and let it go. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful how we're interpreting this passage. And the language, I think, realizes that maybe this is very particularly in a context of how the men and the women, the wives and the husbands, really were relating in the church. Another place that I think we have to pay attention to the language is in verse 12. What does Paul say? I do not permit. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume or have authority over a man. She must be quiet. Why does Paul not permit? Well, this present tense verb and this... Nominative first-person pronoun doesn't really carry always the same force as an imperative, right? The don't do this, do this, is different than, yeah, I don't really know, but I don't think this is the way I would do it. No, no, it's a little different. This is reinforced with the idea that this is a, a, a private letter between Paul and Timothy, written from one leader to another leader, saying, this is how you probably ought to do it. Here's some advice about this situation as that imperative. Now, that might make some of you uneasy, but let me show you. This also happens throughout the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it happens. Um, <clears throat> I know it says 14, but it's really 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Like I said, chapter 7. I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce him. I, not the Lord? Paul's saying, this is not what the Lord says. This is my opinion. Wait, this is I, not the Lord? That's in, just in direct contrast to the verse, a couple of verses before that in verse 10, where he says, to the married I give this command. Not I. This isn't my opinion. This is the Lord. Not I, but the Lord. Later in the same chapter, chapter 7, he says, now about virgins I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Wait, I don't have some direct knowledge from God on this one? I, the apostle, am just saying I'm making a judgment? Anybody get a little, oh gosh. <clears throat> all scripture is God breathed. <laughs> I, I, we started right there. All, all, remember we talked about this? All means all. All means all. So how in the world do we have an all scripture where God's like, well, that's kind of my opinion on this one. See, I think God has these words here for a very specific reason. I think God is showing us that Christians do have to make judgments about all things. Things that maybe just... How much time should your child be spending on, on uh, uh, social media? 
Well, let's look at verse. Um, I don't have a verse for that. But we as Christians have to make decisions. We as Christians have to make decisions. All means all. It's all inspired by God. But here, I think this scripture is particularly helping us realize that we've got to make some judgments. And let me tell you, conservative Bible-believing scholars are making judgments about these passages and trying to figure out what they mean. It's all inspired. We've all got to make judgments. We've got to figure this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. The Holy Spirit helps us and guides us. We need to listen to how the Spirit is directing us. Now, some of you, um, because you've looked at this before, some of you guys impress me with your biblical knowledge, and some of you, quite honestly, are a little bit better biblical scholars than I am. I, I, I figured that out. You figured that out, too. And some of you are going to point out this. You're going to say, Mike, I appreciate your, uh, your perspective, but you need to realize Paul gives a theological argument in this passage of why women and men um, have differences of roles and why the, you're going to point that out to me. And you're going to say, doesn't Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. See, Paul is giving a theological reason why the women are supposed to be quiet in church. They're obviously more susceptible to um, being confused or deceived. Or Isn't that what Paul is trying to obviously say here? Well, as one who is often confused and he keeps having to ask his wife what this means and what, how to go in this direction, I, I kind of realize that maybe um, there's not something inherent in me being male makes me less confusable. Because I'm one that can be pretty much, uh, people can, 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 a lot of things confuse me. Here's where context, I think, plays a huge role. Now, this may not be something that you've talked about or heard about. This was actually a theory that was dismissed early on, but has been revived. It's a theory about um, Artemis worship that was happening in, in Ephesus. Now, why was it dismissed? Well, early scholars were talking about the goddess, the Greek and Roman goddess Artemis, and looking at her over hundreds of years. But in Ephesus at this time period, research has shown that this Artemis worship may have been really affecting the life in that city and the communities around it and at that church. Now, I'm really thankful for the young woman, Rachel, over here, seminary student, who pointed me on to this stuff. She said, you got to read this research. You haven't seen this. And I responded, a woman is not supposed to be teaching over a man. No, no, no. That's not how I responded. I, I, I was immediately going, what? I haven't read this. I haven't seen this. And she's passing me stuff and sending me stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm reading that too. And I, okay, I'm learning. I was convinced because I remember, just as you do, that in the book of Acts, Artemis comes up. When Paul, there was this great revival. Many people were coming to know the Lord. They were throwing away their idols. They were throwing away their books of magic and witchcraft. This was in Ephesus, where this letter is being addressed to Timothy, where he's serving as pastor. Artemis? Who is she? Huh? i got a click going over here. Artemis, um, Artemis who was the, the goddess, worship. Her temple there was seen as one of the seven great wonders of the world. This Artemis man, caused such a riot because the um, men uh, who made statues of Artemis were losing their business. People weren't worshiping her anymore. They were turning to Christianity. They caused a riot. I mean, it is a big deal. Go back and look at Acts chapter 19. These men, all the people had gathered in the temple and they were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis of the Ephesians. It was seen as her birthplace, and her worship there was, was totally dominated the culture. 
Artemis worship in, in Ephesus, I don't have time to discuss it all. But this is a sermon, not one of my New Testament lectures. Though Those are fun too. Um, but here's three things I want you to know about it. Number one, in the story of Artemis, she was born before her twin Apollo. In fact, she came several days, and, and she actually ended up being the one that helped deliver, like the midwife, and helped deliver her own twin brother. You know, that's Greek mythology. They do all kinds of weird stuff. Um, I'm thinking, that's a little young for that job, but okay, hey. Um, but apparently, you know, she was able to do those kinds of things. Now, Artemis here, that kind of got a hold of the women. Wait, the women was born first? Wait, the women were in charge of helping the man come up? Wait, the, and it all of a sudden became part of a, maybe sort of an early sort of taking pride as a woman, being a woman. This is a good thing. Not only so, but the, Artemis, as a goddess, was committed to virginity, apparently. And so as she's committed to her virginity, she never married. And a lot of the women were like, well, we worship Artemis. We're taking a stand like Artemis. We're tired of all this men-dominated world. We're going to just stay single. We're just going to be free. We're just going to be on our own. And this maybe was part of that God, the, the dominant ethos there in Ephesus. And finally, um, she was sort of this goddess of midwifery, right? What is midwifery? Um, it's some show my wife's watching that they use that term. I thought, oh, it's about being a midwife, right? It's about deliverance um, of the children. And so the women who were in, married and who were pregnant, they would pray that Artemis would help them, that Artemis would deliver them through the difficulty of childbearing. And where giving birth was the number one cause of death among women in the ancient world, oh, you better have all the help you can get when it comes to giving birth. So Paul, in this passage, might be actually addressing some of those issues that were among these women who were sort of vacillating between Christian, Christianity and the worship uh, of Artemis. And it says this, for, verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Not Artemis. Not, she's not the predominant one. No, there is some created order to this. Adam came first, then Eve. It was not the woman who was deceived and became the sinner. It, or it was not the man who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner. So the idea is, wait a second. There is some, some, there is some order to this. And it's not that the woman is in that first place, but the man actually had this first place in the creation story. Maybe this is being emphasized by Paul to counter some of the teachings of this cult of Artemis. But what about this part about women was deceived? Is he saying that women were more gullible? Maybe he was just talking about those women in that context. Women who were already influenced by this Artemis cult. Where is there evidence for that? Well, here's the evidence. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. They are the kind of men and women, these false teachers, they are the kind to, don't miss this, worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. Gullible. So, not that all women are gullible, but these particular women in this particular city who had been so influenced by this Artemis cult were particularly susceptible to this deception. Well, not only so, but Artemis was committed to that virginity, right? We remember that? Um, hey, let's just forget about the marriage. Let's just forget about men. Let's just forget about having children. We're going to be like Artemis. And maybe that's why we see Paul's words here later in the same book saying this, I counsel younger widows to marry. 
to have children, to manage their homes, to give the enemy no reason for slander. Paul begins to elevate the home and marriage and this role that women have as the mothers of their children and saying, listen, this is a great task. Don't see this as secondary. Don't see this as giving up on what Artemis would give you. No, see this as God-given. See this as something that, that you should cherish. Manage your children. Get married. Have homes. And notice where he ties this to. Because some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Brothers and sisters, not getting married is not following Satan. If you choose to stay single, it's okay. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul elevates that and says, yeah, you can give all of your attention to the Lord. You don't have to be married. But in this cult where it's like, yeah, marriage is bad. It's just an oppressive institution. It's against us women. Perhaps in that situation, Paul's saying, yeah, it is a good idea. Marriage is good. And finally, I think this helps us with our biggest problem of all. That the Artemis was seen as that, that goddess who helped during childbirth. No, it's Jesus. It's God who gets us through. But women, he says, will be saved through childbearing. What is the through childbearing? Women through... Well, salvation doesn't come because you had a baby. Salvation comes because of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through faith and faith in Him alone. But here, maybe Paul is addressing that instead of trusting Artemis, you trust God. God will get you through. God is the one that will help you as you're giving birth. And God is the one that will save you through this experience. Even if you don't make it, He's the one that saves you for eternal life. Maybe this is all about this Artemis cult. Now, Look, I, I, I know I'm out on a limb here. There are Bible scholars who would disagree with this. And this is a place of current debate right now. There's a new book coming out in November on it. Um, this is a current argument right now among Bible scholars. But I've got some application for you. I've got some application for us as a church. Here's where we're going to land. Interpretation can be difficult. It just can it's hard. This was hard work today. This was hard work. This was a hard kind of sermon. This is a different kind of digging into the Bible than maybe you're used to. Interpretation is hard. So let's study. We have to get these things right. There's a lot at stake when we misinterpret the Scripture, when we use the Scripture to abuse others. There's a lot at stake. Let's make sure that we do our homework. Number two, application. It is clear to me from Scripture that women are gifted sisters in Christ who should be encouraged to serve as God directs. That when young woman, an older woman, any woman in our congregation says, hey, I think God has, wants to use me. I think I've got these spiritual gifts. Hey, we see these spiritual gifts in others. We're going to say, absolutely. Let's see how we can help you discover all that God is leading you to do and all that God has gifted you to become. We are not going to be a place that says, well, okay, you're, you're, okay I'm glad that you want to follow God and know Him more, but... Um, well, first thing, we need to give you a whole big giant list of all the things you can't do because you're, you're not a male. That's not how we're going to approach this. We're going to approach this as encouraging our women to grow in their walk with God and know Him better and be able to be use the gifts as God directs. Does that mean that there's not some differences in roles? Hmm, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more next week as we look at chapter 3. There may be some differences in some of the roles that God has for us, but for the most part, we're going to be encouraging all of us to know God, to walk with Him, to serve as deacons, to serve as servants, to serve as teachers in this place. And finally, I hope that you encounter this, that we have got to implement, um, as we seek 
to know God and follow him and be good ambassadors, that at times, as we implement this culture of heaven, that sometimes we are called to confront and stand up and point out the injustices in this world, the things that are wrong about our current culture. But at sometimes we have to still live within that culture, that we're not just going to be some kind of revolutionaries, that at the same time, sometimes we have to find places of accommodation. It's about knowing God's word, and it's about having the right heart. I want to close with this story. In 1969, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one that we support, um, graduated its very first Masters of Divinity student that was a woman. Now, they've been graduating students since 1904. They'd had thousands of women actually kind of attend some of the classes, but, but actually as a Masters of Divinity student, um, they graduated their very first one in 1969. Now, you know the 60s, right? Woohoo! You know, lots of changes, right, in society were being pushed. This woman, when she first enrolled and wanted to be a Master's of Divinity student, they told her, young lady, I- I'm sorry. I- I'm sorry. Um, no church is going to hire you as a pastor. That's not your role. And you really shouldn't be studying Master's of Divinity. I don't know why you're even enrolling in this degree program. She said, well, I- I'm not really trying to be a pastor. I'm not trying to take over the world. I'm not trying to push for some kind of big change in society. She said, I, I just want to know God. I want to be the best equipped servant in the church I can be. I, I just want to know the scriptures as much as I can, I, I can ever know them. And the seminary was like, well, I guess if you want to know the scriptures, I guess no better place than to study the scriptures at seminary. Oh, okay, go ahead. Fast forward a few decades. This woman had finished her Ph.D. in childhood education. And the seminary was needing someone to be the professor of childhood education. And she applied for the job. And I said, oh, wait, you're a graduate from here. Oh, oh. You have a Ph.D. in education, but you also have your Master's of Divinity. That's great, because now you know the theology as well as knowing the stuff about children. What a big reversal in the school, right? What a crazy reversal. That woman taught at that, at that seminary for over 20 years, training all kinds of children's ministers, youth ministers, future pastors, making sure that they all protected their children well, taught their children well in the schools. They, 20 years of service as a seminary professor, the person that was initially said, should you even be here studying scripture in the MDiv? How many lives were impacted? I think the story of this woman is not a story of, boy, make it change society. Though she did, I think the story is having the right heart. She wanted to know God. She wanted to serve Him in all the ways the Lord had for her. And it seemed like God had opened doors Or maybe we as a society had closed ones. So today, on Mother's Day, I want to thank that woman. I want to say, thanks, Mom. I appreciate what you did. Not as a woman who was seeking to to cross barriers, but as a woman who wanted to follow God with all her heart and serve Him with everything that God had given to her. So I say thanks to my mom. For all that God is using her continually in my life and how he's used her in the lives of so many others. You know, today, like I said, you may disagree with me where I landed on some of this. That's okay. We'll continue to study the scripture together. But here's what we're going to do. As a church, we're going to seek to make sure all of us know God. Know him personally. Know him through his word and through his son, Jesus. Today, if you don't know him, if you want to know him, if you're watching online or sitting here and say, I need this relationship with Jesus, there is no reason to wait. You come 
you respond and find all that God has for you. Young or old, male, female, all of us are brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing one more song. I'm going to be up front here. If you want to make a response to Jesus, as you've seen some others have already made that response, you come, you respond to Jesus today. Joe's going to come and Jacob and lead us in this song. As we sing, you, you surrender your heart again to follow wherever Jesus would lead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the lives that have made so much difference to us. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for your word, which is sometimes is unclear. But thank you that you make it clear through your spirit and through your people. Help us put know and follow you completely. We pray this.